Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I want you to go in your Bibles with me this morning. I invite you to go. We're going to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and you see the title of this message is Persevering Prayer. What can we do that will last that happens apart from prayer? Apart from God doing it? Nothing. Nothing substantial will happen apart from how did that happen? God did that. God answered prayer. If you read through the book of Acts, read through and look at the ways the church prayed and how God responded. He always responded to the prayers of the people of God. Jesus announced in Matthew chapter 5 the arrival of the kingdom of God. He gave a clear description. This is the characteristics of kingdom citizens, children of God. In chapter 6, Jesus proclaimed the sufficiency and the trustworthiness of our Father in heaven that he kept reiterating and pointing out, you can trust your Father in heaven. Why are you going to worry about all of these transient things? Your Father knows what you need. Before you even ask him, go to your Father. In chapter 7, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus approached the topic of judgment. Would you really sit in the seat of God and bring judgment upon other people? That merely raises the standard to a crushing level upon any of us when we say, move over, God, I'm going to pass judgment on that person. Now remember, that's very different than discernment. Verse 6 says you must be discerning. But five verses are given to warn the overzealous Christian that is very, 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 very opinionated in their perspective, their position, their what is right, what is wrong. They don't have a verse specifically talking about it, but they're passionate, so passionate, they post all over social media, follow my cause, and if you don't line up sufficiently, you're outside of my circle of trust. And now I'm against you. So Jesus has five verses of warning to the overzealous Christian that misuses and abuses Scripture and uses the name of God to hurt people. One verse, verse 6, saying, beware, caution, don't throw this precious gospel to swine or to pigs because they'll turn and hurt you. You have to be discerning. Now, when we come to verse 7 of Matthew 7, if we are paying attention, if we're humble... And we've been listening to Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and the first six verses of Matthew 7. There's not one person that says, you know, I'm doing quite well here. I mean, what are you getting? I'm at about 98% is what I'm thinking. Maybe 99 on a good day. There's not a sane, reasoning, humble person that can read the Sermon of the Mount and see this as a to-do list. Oh, yeah, I think I'm actually doing pretty well on this. There are many people that view the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus, like other teachers, gave the Sermon on the Mount, try to live by, it'll help your life. Not it at all. 
the Sermon on the Mount is description for those who are following. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. It's not a how to be saved, how to be born again. This is what life looks like after you have been born again, after you have been redeemed and adopted and forgiven by God. So when we come into these verses this morning and we talk about prayer, it's simply a natural outworking of us saying, individually and corporately, I can't do this. Love your neighbor as yourself? I can't breathe here, and my collar's already undone. I, what? The standard is too high. If you've looked with lust, you've already committed adultery. I'm, I'm choking out here. I can't do this. Now we come to a natural, so what do we do? Go to your father. Well, I went to my father when I asked him to forgive me, and I gave my life to him, and I said, Jesus, come in, take over. And that was it? No. That was the beginning. And moment by moment, go to your father, 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 go to your father. Now, if you're here and you have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, understand you don't have God as Father. You have God as Creator. You're in a relationship with God as Judge. But the invitation is extended to you to humble yourself, turn from your sin, trust in the Lord Jesus, and then he will take your hand as this message. And I pray that if you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling discouraged today, if you're downhearted, feeling defeated, that you will hear the tone that Jesus would have delivered this sermon and you would hear him almost through his word, through his message saying, give me your hand. Go with me. Come to, the, come to the feet of your father. Sit at his feet and look upon his face revealed in Jesus and get to know your father. Seek the face of your father. Seek the heart of your father before just seeking his hand. Now, at this point in the sermon, this isn't a complete flip-flop around that Jesus has been focusing on the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And all of a sudden now, here are the verses that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers take and use this to say, name it and claim it. That if you have faith, you can speak over whatever and it will happen. And if it didn't happen, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't give enough money. You didn't send in enough. You don't believe enough. It's not me or my message. It must be you. And that's how they burden and abuse people who are already being abused and down, downtrodden and defeated by the enemy and by false prophets and false teachers. Jesus is saying in Matthew and the connecting account in Luke, you have a father that so well cares for all of your needs He's cared for you for all of your eternal, your spiritual needs. Can you not trust him for your daily need? But it's perspective. It's perspective. Don't lose sight of the perspective. That if he's cared for you, if he's given everything good in Jesus, Romans 8, 32, how will he then with him not freely give us all things? What is it that he will withhold from you that he, that's the key, that he declares to be good? So let's unpack this together this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 7. 
Ask, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone, you hear that? You hear that wide open? Everyone. Okay, so he's speaking to children of God. Everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your father, in he- your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So let's ask him right now. Father, you are in heaven and we hallow your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We need, Lord, the daily bread that you provide. We need forgiveness. We need your grace. We need your presence. We need your mercy. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ, your church. We need your spirit. And we sit humbly now with your word open to us. And we ask you to draw us near to you to change us, to make us more like Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Now this section is building. It's not a complete change of thought. It's not completely other than. It fits within this context. You might say, well, didn't Jesus already talk about prayer? Didn't we have a message on prayer right back there in chapter 6? We studied the Lord's pattern for prayer given the disciples. It's in the same message. Didn't we cover this already? Well, Jesus is a good teacher. He doesn't doesn't handle us like some teachers, like, I already taught that, moving on. If you didn't get it, fail the class. I'll see you again next semester. Jesus is teaching, and he uses repetition in a most helpful way, and he expands Our priorities do not exclude the importance of our daily needs, but when we prioritize our needs, our wants, then what we are doing is we're setting the temporal, the daily needs in the proper context, in the perspective of the eternal. And do you know how easy it is for us to take the important, the eternal, the never-ending areas of our lives and that get displaced by, but, but I, I've got to do this, and I need to do that, and I'm lacking, and I have to, all of the temporary. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to go? Shelter, all of those things. And so Scripture and the Holy Spirit, and God willing, this sermon is helping us all right-size our spiritual life. Put it back in the place that it needs to be. And God has to help us do this. We can't do this on our own. Don Carson, he's helpful. He says it this way, talking about asking, seeking, knocking. He said, this asking is an asking for the virtues Jesus has just expounded. This seeking is a seeking for God. 
This knocking is a knocking at heaven's throne room. It is a divinely empowered response to God's open invitation from the Old Testament. You will seek me and you will, what's the promise? Find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's exactly right. It's, that's the condition, all your heart. So Jesus is not here giving us in these verses, you know, ask for what you want, seek for what you want, knock enough times in prayer for what you want, and it will happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's how it gets uh, wrongly interpreted and applied. And the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that used to fill a Christian bookstore when you could actually go in a Christian bookstore, how many people are disillusioned by what they thought the Bible teaches or what they thought Jesus meant? No, we didn't understand exactly what he meant. So Jesus is not giving us a blanket guarantee, whatever I want, I say the prayer the right way, he's gonna do it for me. No, God's perfect will. When I seek his will in my life and know that he is always working for my good, for our good and for his glory, then I can trust him and you can trust him. He knows exactly what is best for us and that is what he gives to us. He's better than we are as parents. So here's what we wanna unpack in this. In this sermon today, how did Jesus encourage his disciples to pray? How did Jesus encourage his disciples to pray? And we're just gonna see, basically Jesus is saying, here's two ways. One, pray persistently. Pray persistently. This is prayer that is earnest, and this is prayer that is constant. This isn't, oh, I prayed about that years ago. You ever find a prayer list laying around that you had and used maybe some years back? And you're like, oh, I was praying for this situation or that situation. And man, I need to, I need to remember that in prayer. God, thank you for helping me find that. Let me go back to praying for that situation. This is praying persistently. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you, verse 7 says. We've been given here a gracious invitation. So th this is where the tone and the perspective that we're hearing from Jesus, it really matters. That if you hear this is pray, and you need to pray, and you need to pray more, that's not very inviting. But if you understand what Jesus is doing for his children, his followers, his disciples, is he is saying, do you, who can you call today that can make something happen? I mean something big happen. Not many of us have those kind of connections. And Jesus is saying all of those earthly connections, they pale drastically in comparison to Jesus saying, I have a connection for you. With who? My Father in heaven. Everything belongs to him. It's all his. That's a big connection. 
And when we rightly understand this, and Jesus is not saying, and who are you again? Get out of here. What have you done? Pfft, back off, get, get away, get away. No, not for you. Oh, look at this fine person here. Come on in. That's not Jesus. The last first, the first last, it's all upside down. The, the weak things of the world, Paul writes, God has chosen. Why? So that the glory rests in the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And we boast not in who we are, not in what we've done, but this is what God has done for us. And we are given. Now hear this. Jesus is saying, let me give you this invitation. Give me your hand. And do you know what we get to do? We take his hand, he grabs our hand, he holds us, and do you know what through us he's doing? It isn't, that's it, we're all done, and I'm only focused. It's, we have a life, and we have time, and our hand gets extended to say, who else needs this connection? Who else needs to be redeemed and forgiven? And you're on the road to hell. Hang on a second, I know someone that can do something about your situation. So here, let me transfer your hand to his and then someone else is reaching out and someone else is reaching out and suddenly we're on mission. That's why we're here. It's not just to have our prayer list, our want list met or God hasn't done us, you know, right. No, no, no. We've been given such a gracious invitation. The tense of what Jesus is saying here is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Those are all three descriptions of prayer. That if we pray without ceasing, that's how we live in complete and utter dependence upon God for absolutely everything. Listen to what John Calvin says. He says it this way. Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Just let that sink in, that Jesus said, come, you have a father in heaven. He hears you. He's listening to you. Listen to what Martin Luther said. He says, he knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. That's what should happen out of Matthew 7, judging others. And if we're right and we judge ourselves, and we haven't met the standard, so here we are. We're timid and shy. We feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great, and we are so tiny that we dare not to pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts, and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. You see what these men are doing? They're saying, come Go to prayer. Go to your Father. This is what Jesus is saying. So what does Jesus say? If we're going to pray persistent, persistently, in this gracious invitation, first of all, we need to ask. Well, if we're asking for something, what does this imply? It means we're missing something. We don't have something. We lack something. There is something that on our own we don't have. Some of you, not me, of course, struggle with asking others for help. Pastor just lied, right? <laughs> asking others for help. Why? 
Because we have to admit, I can't do it on my own. We're all like that little kid. I do it myself. I do it myself. You're trying to drive the car. You're two. You can't do that yourself. We get in trouble there. I do it myself. Now, you need help. If we're asking, that means we're saying, I, I, I'm lacking. I'm needy. Turn over with me to Luke. Luke chapter 11. Some of you were here in 2013 when we were going through Luke, and I actually pulled up this sermon and just looked over it. I looked over what we were praying for as a church at the end. I don't always do this, but in, in that particular sermon manuscript, I listed here are some things that we are praying for. I'll tell you, God has answered some of those prayers in the way we were asking, and God didn't answer some of those prayers the way we were asking. And God is still good, and God is faithful. In Luke chapter 11, uh, Luke gives the account, and Luke is the one who gives to us this gospel and also the book of Acts where we, he, the, the ministry of the Spirit is so important to Luke as he put together this account. So after the Lord's teaching in the first four verses, in verse five, uh, and he said to them, Jesus' teaching, which of you as a friend, go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. The house is all put to bed. I'm not going to wake everybody up. You're going to ruin my night. Verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, you're my friend. No. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Fine. Here's the food. The whole house is awake now. Go away, friend. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a fish of a fish, give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. Thanks, Dad. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Now listen to this difference from Luke's perspective. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There's a condition that helps us, going back to Matthew, understand that in Matthew's presentation, Luke's complimentary passage helps us understand even better that this is not all about what I want in this lifetime, but it doesn't exclude what I need in this lifetime. Eternally, I need the Holy Spirit, but I also presently need the Holy Spirit in my life. I need his provision for what I'm gonna wear and what I'm gonna eat and where I'm gonna lay my head, all of these things. James chapter one and verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So what are we saying? James is saying, you have to admit, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have all the answers. 
I need help. I'm lacking wisdom. Let him. What do we do about that? God, help me. Give me wisdom who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask. Do you know how often I pray that prayer? Lord, I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Like, wait, I thought you said your name was wise. Yeah, it is. Tough name to live up to. But I lack wisdom way too much. So I pray. We ought to pray. Not only ask, but seek. If we're seeking after something, then this implies that something we can't find. Without God, there's something we can't find. Looking, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm looking after this. I'm looking here. I'm looking there. And I'm not finding anything. And Jesus is saying, ask and seek. Without God drawing us to himself, beloved, we'd never seek after him. Dead individuals don't seek after anything. And that's the language of Scripture, that we're spiritually dead, blind, helpless, like Lazarus in the tomb, until the voice and the word of God come active in our lives. Lazarus, come forth. That is a beautiful picture of what salvation is. It isn't a reward for Lazarus trying really hard in the tomb. He was dead. He didn't need a motivational speech or encouragement. He needed life. And that's what the word of God has done or will do for you. Gives life to the dead. He seeks us. He finds us. He saves us. God is abundantly gracious and merciful towards sinners. Scripture is clear on this, that we're lost. We're separated from God. We would never seek him on our own. So he comes for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Paul writing, he says, no one understands. Like, I'm not sure if I agree with you, pastor. I think people seek after God. Well, then you have to take it up with Romans 3.11. No one seeks for God. There's no glory to me at all for becoming a Christian. Or you. There's no worthy is the lamb and wise in heaven. No, 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 no. It's 100% worthy is the lamb. He's so worthy, he saved wise. And you can put your name in there if you've been saved. Paul writes in Romans 10.20, quoting the prophet Isaiah, speaking for God, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. This is how good God is. They weren't seeking after me. Abraham wasn't seeking after God. God went and found him. I've been found by those who did not seek me. And listen, this is how good God is. He says, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. If you're in Christ, that's you. You were living your life for you. I want to do this. I don't want to do that. I like this. I want to do, go there. This is what I fill my time with. This is how I spend my money. This is my pleasure. This is my joy. And then God. Amen to that. He revealed himself to me. He, I wasn't looking for him. He has shown himself to those who did not ask for me. So after a person comes to faith in Christ, then their whole life is put upside down. It's completely changed around. It's a complete 180. And they begin to seek God. Proverbs 8 and verse 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligent, diligently find me. 
So we are now the seekers after God's heart because he came seeking for us. You see how this works? Matthew 6, again, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you know why I've been saying all along this isn't a message of how to be saved because then that, that doesn't work. This is people who have come to faith in Christ and we have to be reminded we have to be encouraged. Hey, are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or are you seeking your kingdom? That's moment by moment for me and for you. Jeremiah 29. This was read in our hearing in the welcome video today. God's word. It's written to an exiled people, okay? I know that Jeremiah 29, 11 is used a lot on, you know, graduation cards and greeting cards and whatever, you know, plaques in the house. But we have to put it in the context of this is a judged people. These are people who are, have been desolated because of their sin and God dealing with them righteously and justly and put in judgment. But they have to be reminded, I'm not finished with you yet. My plan of redemption is still unfolding. You have been bad. I have been good to you is what God is saying in this. And their response was, we don't deserve you being good to us. We deserve your judgment. And I think we can agree with the people of God in that way. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Because it didn't look like they had a future and a hope right then and there. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will, verse 13, seek me, and what's the promise? Find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Who was responsible for the situation they, they were in? Their sin, God's hand of judgment. God isn't running from that problem. If our God is so powerful, then why, are, why is this happening to us? And why are we being judged? And why do I have troubles? And it seems like these people, and we're in these nations, and like they just go by all fine and dandy, and look at my life, and I'm searching after God, and I'm seeking him. And the Lord is coming to them in faithfulness and in truth through the prophet saying, are you really seeking me with all your heart? Or do you seek me for, you know, maybe an hour on Sundays if I can get around to it? Oh, it's very different than our whole lives seeking him. Isaiah 55, verse six and seven, seek the Lord while he may be found. I don't wanna hurry past that. Okay, because it's always the temptation for people who are even children of God or people who don't yet know God to say, you know what, next week. You know what, I'm gonna come back. That was an interesting sermon. Maybe next week. You know, maybe, maybe next year. I've gotta finish this and I've gotta do the other and I've got, I've got life, I've got time. So, you know, it's on my side. I heard that song. Mm -mm. Listen to God. Don't listen to your feelings. Don't listen to that voice that is lying, that says, I've got all the time in the world. No, you don't. You have this moment. I have this moment. So God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you hear that gracious invitation? Ask, seek, knock. It's, a, it's an invitation. If we hear it as just coming in anger, you, we, we miss the complete heart of God here. He's waiting to pardon. He's waiting to forgive. He's waiting to extend mercy. Will you come to him? What is it that you truly need? Are you going to God? Are you asking? Are you seeking? And thirdly, Jesus says, knock. Well, what does it mean if you have to knock? It means the door is closed. It means you can't get in. It means you're shut out. It means there's somewhere that appears that you're not allowed to go. And so you have to, you have to knock. It's always helpful, right, to not just barge into rooms. <laughs> like, whoa, sorry. I didn't know you, what? My bad. Could you have knocked? And Jesus is saying, seek, ask, knock. And each of those are, you can put the I-N-G at the end, keep on asking, seeking, knocking. Well, how is it that we can have this door open then? It's only through the gospel that we're allowed to go. So the Old Testament looked forward to the coming Messiah who would shed his life's blood for them. And all of those sacrifices never removed their sins. They merely covered the sins, waiting in expectation for the coming sacrifice that would be what Hebrews says, once and for all. And here we are on this side of the cross and we look back after the resurrection and we understand the only way that we have access to the throne room of heaven is because that wall has been broken down through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians, Paul writes in verse 13 of chapter two, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? What was the price for you and for me to be brought near? His life's blood, the blood of Christ. It cost him his life. To, he's mentioning it in one brief verse, in Christ Jesus. How did I get in there? How am I included in there? It wasn't by what I've done because I've done plenty of wrong and offensive to God. It wasn't by me doing more good than bad because I probably haven't. Even good that I've done is tainted with my bad self. Wrong motives. Wrong attitude. It required him accessing that for me, opening that entrance for me and for you. John 10, Jesus declared, verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is shepherd language because there wasn't a door on the sheepfold. The door was the shepherd. And they all understood that. Anybody been hanging out with the sheep this week? Spent your nights in the door of the fold? No, and that's not our culture. They understood what he was saying. If you're a wolf and you want the sheep, there's one way in. You got to take down the shepherd. And at times they probably did. It looked like they took down the chief shepherd until he rose again on Easter morning. And he said, nope, not taking any of the sheep. They're all mine. And he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He is the way in. It's not us, our way in. It's Christ has made the way. Revelation 3.20. Jesus is saying, as he is describing outside of this church, he can't get in his own church. I've heard, I've heard this verse used as inviting people into salvation, but that's not what this verse is in the context of. Jesus, it's even more powerful when he says, you call yourself my church. You're doing spiritual things, Christian things, religious things. And he's saying, do you know who's on the outside of this organization that you join in, that you're part of? The supposed head of the church. Listen to Revelation 3.20, behold, this is shocking. Don't miss this. Pay attention. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Do you hear the Old Testament similar? I want to come in and have fellowship with you. I'm ready to pardon you. I'm ready to forgive you. I want to be with you. But you have to open this door, church. You look like you're alive and going through all the motions. Problem. The Lord of the church is outside knocking. Does anyone hear my voice in here? Or are you all that wholeheartedly committed to your will, your way, your desires, what you want? And if you, that church doesn't give it to you, go to another church and then go to another church and then go to another church. All the while, never even thinking, is the Lord of the church trying to get in this place? Is he welcomed in here? Because that's the idea. He's saying, I'm not welcome in what you're doing. What are you talking about? Well, bring someone in that is a different skin color than yours. How welcoming are you? Bring somebody in that's a, of a different political party than yours. How welcoming are you? Bring someone in that has nothing humanly to offer to you. How welcoming are we to them? And Jesus is saying, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. What? If you would have said, it's Jesus on the outside, we would have opened the doors to you. Yeah, hypocrites. I came in so many ways to you and you were too preoccupied with you and I was outside. Oh, may that never be said of this body of believers, amen? What does this require? Not arrogance saying, of course, that would never happen here. It requires humility. Oh God, where is this happening here? And is this ongoing here? Or are we throwing wide the gate to say anybody's welcome? There's many ways to the cross, but there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. And we're the ones saying, come on, he's good. He's ready to pardon. He's ready to forgive. Come meet him. Asking, seeking, and knocking. It's a wholehearted pursuit of God. Pursuing his glory and his kingdom in our lives. 
So keep on keeping on in your asking, in your seeking, and in our knocking. This is what persistent prayer is. Now, here's the question that follows this. We see that. I mean, it's written down probably on your notes right there. Ask, seek, knock. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. But if we start thinking, why isn't that just easy for us to do? That's not easy for me to do. Please don't understand that, that I'm in front of you saying, just, that's it. That's all you got to do. It's so easy. Why is this so hard to do? Why is this so difficult? Because we get distracted. We get preoccupied with other lesser things. There are times when we think that God isn't listening, he doesn't hear my prayers, or if he does hear my prayers, he's not doing what I want him to do, so maybe he's not able to do what I'm asking him to do. He's not powerful enough to do what I'm asking him to do, or maybe because he's not doing what I'm asking him to do, he's not good as I believed he was good. Now I'm right back to me being in a judgment seat over God. Beloved, that is the thinnest of ice. Maybe we can be tempted to think maybe there's something wrong with me. I've, I've, this is probably the one area that in pastoral ministry, people who are de- sincere about this, where they are defeated the most, where they live in almost a constant, perpetual beating themselves up because there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with me. I must not be doing enough. I must not be whatever, enough, enough, enough. I need to do more. I need to do more. And if I did more, then the Lord would answer that prayer then explain to me the death of Jesus. If you're a defeated person like this, you have the same place to go as anybody else. You have to go to the cross and say, was it because God was weak that Jesus was allowed to die? Was it because God didn't care that Jesus was allowed to die? Was it because that God was unable to deliver Jesus that he was allowed to die? Or is it because, and this is what I believe, that God is so good, the only way to reveal his glory and to redeem humanity was for Jesus to lay down his life, and that was the plan before anything was ever created And it unfolded, and with our eyes, we beheld the glory of God revealed in grace and truth and in the person of Jesus Christ. And he suffered and he died, not because he had done anything wrong. So if you struggle, hear me, if you struggle with, I'm I'm not doing enough, and so therefore my prayers aren't being answered in the way that I'm praying, you have to go back to the cross. And then we have to begin to address our prayers. Am I seeking God's glory above all or am I seeking my glory? Am I seeking God's will or am I seeking my will? Am I seeking his fame or my fame? What is at the heart of my prayers and can I trust him? And now I find myself in a place of human responsibility that I can embrace under the mighty hand, the sovereign hand of God, knowing that he takes my right and my wrongs and he's writing a straight line with a crooked pen, this guy. And there's hope in every turn of life when we see it accurately. Verse eight, we've been given a guaranteed promise. A guaranteed promise. What can you guarantee anyone? I guarantee 
I'll see you at eight o'clock tomorrow. Can you, can you guarantee that? I guarantee this stock is going through the roof. Oh, you guarantee? Okay. Watch out. But Jesus gives a guaranteed promise here. What hope do we have that is available to anyone who comes through Jesus? For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is what Jesus is saying. So, beloved, you will receive what you don't have. It's available in Christ. This is how good God really is. We'll be able to take a hold of what God provides. And Jesus says, not only will you receive, ask and you will receive, but seek and here's the promise, you will find what was lost. You'll locate what was missing. What is the greatest thing that is missing in all human life? If they don't know Christ, it's knowing Christ. And everything else flows out of that. What you eat, what you wear, how long you live. It's all in perspective to, do I know God? You will enter. You'll enter where you should not be allowed. The door will be opened wide. And this is true for our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. It's a guaranteed promise. You will receive, you will find, you will enter. All this ought to encourage us. Paul prayed for this. He asked the Colossian believers to pray for his ministry, Colossians 4, 3 through 4. He says this at the same time. Colossian church, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Okay, would that be what you'd be praying for if you were in prison? Dear church, I am in the Richmond jail. Pray for me that. What do you think I'm gonna say? I want out. I want back in my bed. I want back in my house, back to the meals that I choose. And Paul says, I'm in prison and I need you to pray for me. Oh, we got you, Paul. We'll be praying for the, hang on. Verse four, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pray for me that in this trial, the glory of God and the goodness of Christ will be revealed through me. Oh yeah, that's what I was gonna say too, Paul. I was gonna pray that too. That's what I was gonna say. Yes. Oh, I've lied again, right? What does Jesus promise to the Philadelphian church? Okay, so remember? That church, Revelation, hey, I can't get in, I can't get in. Now to the, the faithful church, the loving church, the Philadelphian church, Revelation 3, verse 7, and to the angel, the messenger, or the pastor of the church of Philadelphia, right? the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. What do you need a key for? To unlock somewhere. Can't get in. Who is this? He has the key of David. How good is this key? 
who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse eight, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Can you just, can you just let Revelation 3.8 just sink in a little bit? Think of it in church family life. On a week-to-week basis, does it really seem like this church is globally impacting, you know, just shifting cultures all over the planet? Is, is that what our church seems like to you? Maybe not. Doesn't seem that way to me. I have prayer and vision and plans for what our church would be used by God to do in this area. But understand, Jesus is saying to this faithful, loving church, you might think you're not really doing a lot for the kingdom, but I know what you're doing. That's the key. I'm just serving in the nursery. I'm just greeting people. I'm just making coffee. I'm just cleaning. I'm just making a phone call to a shut-in. I'm just reaching out. It doesn't seem like a lot until Jesus, the one with the key that opens doors and no one shuts. And when he shuts a door, nobody opens it up. They can't override his key. And he says, I know your works. I know you. I know what you're doing. So just give it to me and watch and see what I do with your ministry offered to the Lord. Oh, that's so much encouragement. So Jesus encourages his disciples to pray persistently and secondly, pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. What's our attitude here? What is the outlook of the, our lives of prayer? How do we pray with this kind of expectation what, it is, what is it about God that would keep us and sustain us praying persistently? Well, listen to what Jesus is saying. If we're seeking God, we're seeking his kingdom over and above everything else, then what can we actually expect from God? And now here Jesus gives an illustration. Again, he's the master teacher. In verses 9 and 10, he gives an illustration. This is a thoughtful illustration. This is an illustration we have to think about. We have to consider what he's saying. He says a lot in these two verses. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Okay, just just think about this a little bit. Hey, dad, can I have some bread? Sure, son. Oh, you got a tooth in there now? That's great. Here's a rock. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Dad, I broke my tooth. Which parent is going to do that to their kid? Now, if you've had kids, you've probably done this with lemons, (laughs) right? And the kid's like, oh, it's bright, and it looks fruity, and wow. And then they take a bite, and then you get your camera because the pucker face is coming, right? Like, oh, what have you done to me? Want another one? Sure, I'm going to trust you again. Oh, what's going on here? And we just laugh. 
but it's not exactly giving your kid a stone. And then if your kid says, I'm really hungry, can I have some fish? This is very common, bread and fish in Galilee, by the seashore, up on the mountain. They can probably see the Sea of Galilee. This was a common diet and normal food that they would eat. And the parent says, oh, sure. I, you know, have I told you I loved you today? Yeah, I love you so much. Here's a python, you know, an eel. They have those. They, they look like a fish. Here you go. Ah, yeah, what are you doing to me? I love you so much. Here's a snake. And Jesus is just pointing this out. So you see, like, you feel it's getting heavy, what he's saying. So he needs to lighten it up a little bit. He needs to make us think. He needs to make his audience think that children, they ask their parents for necessary things in life. Why? Because they're dependent on them for everything. And if you don't give that kid what they want, Dad, I'm hungry. I know you told me that already like seven times. I know, but I'm hungry. I mean, this is, this is a conversation that happened yesterday. I'm hungry. I know, but we're not ready to eat yet. Have some, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. What do, what do children do? They keep asking until you give them something to eat. And it's not just children, right? <laughs> That's us too, us guys, all right? Like children, they just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No. When are we going to be there? Parents generally give good gifts to their children, not destructive or hurtful gifts. Generally, there are sad situations where parents are selfish or perhaps so overcome by addictions that they can't discern between, between giving good gifts to their children and they miss out on blessings that they could be to their children. And Jesus is here saying, think about this because it's a life-changing application. He gives an illustration like, you guys are evil and you give good gifts. Now he drops the hammer. Now he makes the point. Verse 11, it's a life-changing application. How much better will our Father in heaven take care of us? This is a common Jewish argument. How much more? Less, lesser to greater. If you give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven this is a life-changing application for our prayers. If you then, verse 11 says, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask of him? So what is Jesus saying? If evil parents know how to provide for their children, Jesus is clearly stating here that we're all depraved. Not any of a, we're not born with a good nature. We're born with a sin nature. We're sinners by birth, by choice, and by nature. We're in trouble. And people who don't know God, they know how to give gifts to their kids. Sometimes, though, they overgive gifts to their kids. They overprotect their kids. They spoil their kids. They thought they were doing good, and then the kid turns out, and it doesn't turn out well because they did everything for them, and what they thought was being good to them actually was hurtful to them, but they meant well, but it didn't, it didn't turn out well. 
if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts. Think about how much more will your Father in heaven provide. Now listen, all that is good to those who ask of him. None of our parents were perfect in all of their giving and withholding. Some of our parents and some of us as parents were stingy with our time, stingy with resources, too preoccupied. Some parents are too child-centered and spoil their children. None of us who are parents are perfect in all of our ways. We've all failed often. We've all, if you're a parent, I hope you've said from time to time when needed, will you please forgive me? I missed it. I overcorrected you. I didn't understand. I undercorrected you. I did too much for you. And that was my own self-centeredness. You were a bother to me. You, you got in my way and I just wanted to get it done. And I put you off to the side. See, this is human parenting. And yet we, we want to give good gifts to our kids. And Jesus is saying, okay, so can you take my hand and come to your Father in heaven? If you know how to get it right sometimes, how much more will your Father in heaven who gets it right all the time? Do you, do you really want God to answer all of your prayers? I'm thankful that God has not answered all of my prayers the way I prayed. In his goodness, he told me no many times. And he's told me wait many times. And in his grace and mercy and his goodness, he's given yes far more many times than I deserve. Oh, that we would hear this. If we can generally trust human parents that are fallible, can we not trust our infallible, perfect, and good Father in heaven with our daily physical needs? as well as our eternal need. Didn't we just sing that song this morning, Stephen leading us? You have a good, good father. What does that mean? It sets your identity if you're a child of God. I am loved. And he's perfect in all of his ways. Does that mean I understand all of his ways? No. I've been in so many situations where I wish I could give an answer. Here's what God is doing. Here's why God is doing that. I don't know. Just have to be honest and humble. James 1.17 says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love that verse. He created all of the the lights and the galaxies and the sun and all of the shadows operate by what? But he doesn't change. He doesn't change. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, our heavenly father will correct our prayer and give us not what we ignorantly seek, but what we really need. The promise to give what we ask is here explained and set in its true light. This is a gracious correction of the folly 
which would read the Lord's words in the most literal sense and make us dream that every whim of ours had only to put on the dress of prayer in order to its realization. Our prayers go to heaven in a revised version. It would be a terrible thing if God always gave us all we asked for. Our heavenly Father himself knows how to give far better than we know how to ask. He knows how to give far better than I know how to ask. Doesn't that give you encouragement? Okay, so seek and ask and knock. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Uh, Lord, what Wise is really saying, Father, what Wise is really saying is, and he translates in times I don't even know what to pray, I don't even know what to say, and the Holy Spirit doesn't say, ah, get out till you figure it out. He says, come on in, and we'll figure this out for you. And we'll carry you, because you have a good father. He doesn't ever get tired, never gets weak, never gets sleepy, never gets distant. He's always on time. So in all of the light of this, think about Hebrews 4 and the invitation that is opened up and what we have in a high priest to open the way to heaven. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if we can trust him for mercy and grace, can we not trust him for our daily need and bread? That's the point. But our bread and clothes and how long we live and, and, our, and our status in life, all of that is subjected to God's glory and his goodness and his grace. So come to him. Take Jesus' invitation. And what does he say? Pray. Pray earnestly. Pray persistently. Persist in prayer. And not only that, but pray expectantly. If we can go to our human parents and have our needs met, can we not learn to go to our Father in heaven knowing he's good, he's perfect, in all our ways. Three questions. Number one, why is it astounding that God hears and answers our prayers? Can we just get blown away by that? That God hears and he answers my prayers, our prayers? Why? He's good. The end, right? Number two is this. What am I praying for that can only be accomplished by God? What are we praying for as a church that only God can do? Lives to be changed, lives to be restored, hope to be uh, placed in people with no hope, marriages. There's a lot of areas we're praying for. And number three, my next step to persevere in prayer is what? Can we help you take that step? What's that next step today? To take up Jesus at his offer and say, come on, let's go pray persistently and pray with expectation. Pray expectantly. Let's stand together. Oh, Father, we come boldly to the throne of grace 
and at your throne of grace, that throne room that is opened and unlocked because of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, we thank you. And I pray today with expectation, Lord, that those who don't know Christ, that today they would humbly confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior and receive your free gift of salvation. Father, I pray for all of your children who have been saved, that they would, that we would together draw near to you, that we would seek the heart of the Father. Father, you work in us by your spirit. Convict us of what is wrong and convince us of all that is right and true. For the glory and honor of Jesus, we pray. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.